read the word of God together. John chapter 8, verse 37 through 47. I know that you are the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you've heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You were doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Thank you. You may be seated. As many of you know, I have two sons. I have Gavin, who is 18, who at present is in the middle of boot camp for the Marines down in um, San Diego. I have a son, Adam, who has just recently turned 13. So all of them were in that era. Um, And um, their names are Gavin Spencer Phillips and Adam Joel Phillips. In other countries, though, other cultures, um, a son is known by his father. My son's names are really not connected to me as a dad. It's kind of a family name, right? The Phillips family, and that's been really part of our American culture for the most part. Um, But in other cultures, a son is known by his father, and this is known as a patronym. And let's just think a little bit about what a patronym is. It's a name based upon the given name of one's father, grandfather, or even an earlier male ancestor. Now, here are some. In fact, some of you have a name that is a patronym. I see Anderson back there, right? Dodson, all right? There may be some others here that have a last name that identifies that. But here are some from across the world, okay? Um, There is Will Son, son of William. That's what it means, okay? Powell is actually a Welsh name from Ap Hywel. And so Ap Powell just ends up being Powell, just how it sounds. It means son of Howell, okay? Uh, Fernandez, the son of Fernando. Rodriguez, the son of Rodrigo. Carlson, any idea what that might be? Son of Carl, all right, we're on the same wavelength here. As we move down, Petrov, all right, means of Petrov. Stefanovich. Son of Stefan or little Stefan. Interesting, when I was in Russia, you know, you learned about that. Everyone has, in fact, what they do now is their middle name usually is their father's name um, in this format. Then there's O'Connor. I thought this was interesting. It's the Irish or Gaelic name, um, Conkabar. And I, I wouldn't want to be saying that all the time. So O'Connor makes sense, right? I mean, you think about that. It's short for that. But, but the idea here is that before, I might want to say, a modern era, People were known by what their father did or who their father was in the town, and that had some effect on those boys in particular. Because if the son of Rod was out in the community and the son of Rod was doing something that wasn't good, everyone would know that is the son of Rod. Okay? So those sons, in a sense, take on their, their father's uh, identity. Now, if, if these things were true about me, oh, I didn't even give these to you. I'm sorry. There you go. See, there's the proof of it. Um, 
If this was true about me, here's how it would play out. I'll give you four examples of it, all right? Gavin Rodrickson. I don't know that they would like that, but that's what it would look like. Here's another one. Adam Rodrikovich. See, my name's Roderick, right? So be Adam, son of Roderick, all right, in, in Russian. How about Gavin Apoderic? That doesn't sound like I'm from the, uh, I don't know, the Adirondacks or something like that, right? It's kind of weird. Um, and Adam O. Roderick. How do you like that one, huh? All right? But the whole point is identifying them with me as father, all right? Like I said, our culture doesn't do that. But, but the idea here is that they are known by their relationship with their father, and all they do would be a reflection of him. And so that's really the, the essence of what we come to in this particular passage of Scripture. I don't know if you caught it as we were reading it through, but there's a huge emphasis here about fatherhood and the relationship with the people that Jesus is talking to about a father and who it, their father actually is. Now, as, as humans, we typically think uh, that fatherhood has to do with you know, things we think, how we behave, how we make choices as, as being a reflection of the, the ethics, the attitudes, and the behaviors of our fathers. And, and that isn't always true, but there certainly is a sense of that, right? Uh, you know, especially in more of an agrarian culture, you know, you have someone who is the son of someone, they're usually working with them, doing the same trade, and they carry a lot of the same ideas, the same kind of mentality, but, you know, it's not always going to be true. But in the general principle, that, that would be uh, true. And that's why we have expressions like, like father, like what? Like son. Or he's a chip off the what? Old block. That's lovely, isn't it? Calling me a, an old block right now, right? That's really encouraging. The idea is that, you know, you're, you're like your father. So, we come to this passage, and we're not talking here about physical fathers, but spiritual ones. So we have two questions before us today as we come to this text that this text is going to answer for us and we have to consider for ourselves. Number one, who is my father? And secondly, how can I be sure that God is my father? So we're going to see the first one really as we go through the text and see what's going on with uh, Jesus and these Jews. And then we're going to kind of recircle back and ask ourselves more practically, how do I know that I am the son of this Father who is God. So let's just go to the Lord in prayer right now. Lord, we ask for your help today. What we know not, Lord, would you teach us? What we are not, Lord, would you make us? And Lord, what we have not, would you give us? And allow me as your messenger to be faithful, Lord, to what you say, to reveal your truth, Lord, that your people would be strengthened and built up, Lord, in the faith so that they can glorify you, Lord, with their lives. I just ask, Lord, for humble hearts, and, uh, Lord, for freedom for us to consider, Lord, the things that you're challenging with us, us with today. We ask in your name. Amen. So, as we move on here, who is your father? It's a really, really important question, and it's, an, it's a question that, that is screaming from this text. But we need to set the stage a little bit so that we can all understand how we even got to this text to have this kind of conversation. There has been this ongoing but lengthy discourse that Jesus has been having with the Jews and the Jewish leadership. The Pharisees, even the Sadducees and scribes have been a part of this. At present, though, the audience is simply the Jews. And so Jesus has over and over and over again revealed himself, identified himself as the Son of God, as the Messiah, as the Christ. And there have been a number of illustrations he's used along the way. I'll just give you three. You know, he's identified himself as the bread of life, uh, the, the, the water that brings life, and also the light of the world, just to mention a couple. But we could go back and list a whole bunch more that are there. And what he's doing through all of these, these times is he's revealing who he is. He's revealing the fact that not only is he connected to the Father, but he is actually from the Father and he is with the Father because he actually is God and he has been sent from the Father and he has work to do and we find him teaching in the temple on all these topics just over and over repeatedly day after day. And he's interacting with these people regularly, but we found out that Along the way, uh, as the Jews were listening to this, as the leadership were listening to this, they responded in negative ways, mostly. Um, 
basically, they're, we can summarize it into four. They try to discredit him, attacking his credentials. They try to catch him in particular, thinking uh, that uh, their questions would be impossible to answer, but Jesus, because he's God, finds that way to answer the question perfectly and right and putting them in their spot. They seek to arrest him, but he slips away. They even try and, and, and kill him. That's their desire, but they're not to do that. We're also told that there are some that believe. And last week in particular, we, we kind of questioned whether that belief was superficial, whether it was true. And if you remember in that passage, Jesus says, listen, a true disciple is someone who abides in the word and someone who knows the truth and ultimately someone who understands what it means to be free. And so he's trying to separate the true believers from those that are superficial believers. And we know that they're superficial believers from chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, because Jesus, although they were believing in what he was doing, he knew it was in their heart. And we understand that, that belief is one of these kind of nebulous things, and so we need to ask ourselves the question, am I truly a believer? It's a healthy question for us to consider, and it's also a question that reinforces our faith when we consider that question. So here we have this same group that Jesus continues to talk to. He's still asking questions and challenging those who claim to believe, um, questioning whether that belief is true. So now he's pushing a little further for them to consider their claims at their spiritual fatherhood. And that's where we come to this particular text. Now the first question here is this. Is Abraham your father? Let's look at verse 37 and 38. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. So the first thing we need to note here about, about this passage here is that um, he's identifying that you are his offspring. In other words, Jesus is recognizing that what they're saying is true that they are the descendants of Abraham. There's a sense in which what they're saying is true. Their pedigree is unassailable, it is unquestionable. We can say it's, it's admirable, and it's kind of a, it's, it's a, a really cool thing that God has preserved his people for so long. At the same time, the same principle can be true in our, might wanna say, modern day context. People view their spirituality through the lens of those who have gone before them. You know, as I've talked with people through the years, some have said, well, you know, my, my grandfather used to be a pastor. And what they mean by that is, well, see, I have some spiritual kind of nature in me somehow because my grandfather was a pastor. Or, you know, I, I used to attend XYZ church, really, you know, big pizzazz church that was powerfully doing stuff. Or I attended such and such seminary um, or, you know, I, I, I built something that happened to be a great, you know, endeavor that was ministry-minded, and people, people think somehow that, that those are connections and avenues that demonstrate their spiritual lineage. And friends, we've got to be very, very care careful, although those things are worthy, those are commendable to have that kind of a heritage. Now, I'm thankful that my parents, both were born and raised in India, that my Mother's parents were missionaries to India. But that doesn't mean that I am automatically a child of God. I'm thankful for that heritage. And I don't want to put down any of those things that God has done through my family through the years. But when it comes down to it, I stand alone before God on that day. Okay? And so it's important here to understand what Jesus is revealing to us as he is interacting with these Jews. You may be his offering, but you are not like him, ultimately, is what he is saying. Look at verse 39 and following. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. So not only where they, was he simply clearly identifying the fact that they are his offspring, he's also identifying that you, Jews, are actually not like your father that you claim to have as your heritage. You don't think like him, you don't behave like him, clearly you don't do the things that Abraham 
did. That's what it says there in verse 39. If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. Now, what are these works? Well, let's go back into the, 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 the book of Genesis. Let's just look at a couple of different passages in the book of Genesis, because I think if they're saying Abraham is our father, I would expect these Jews to understand some of the story and the interaction that we have recorded in Scripture about Abraham. And uh, so we go back to Genesis chapter 15. We'll pick it up at verse 1. Here we have this vision and visitation from God. Genesis 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member uh, of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. Now just think about that statement. You know, childless, childless, childless. The real panic of everything that I have been able to accomplish, everything that God has provided for me, being handed over to a family member because I don't have an heir and notice what it says, verse 4, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. I'm going to have a son. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said, So shall your offspring be. And here's the key part, verse 6. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. He, that's Abraham, believed the Lord, and he, that is the Lord, counted it to him, that's Abraham, as righteousness. That's the first example here. Abraham believed the Lord. It seemed impossible, it seemed unusual, that not only is he going to have a son, but he is going to be the father of nations. He's going to be the father of many people. Then, Genesis chapter 18, turn over a few pages there. We're not going to read a lot of this, but really highlight the, the content here. In Genesis 18, the Lord shows up, that's Yahweh shows up, and there are three men, three angels we understand from, I think, chapter, uh, or verse 22 of chapter 18. He's visited by the Lord and three angels. He receives a message from the Lord, first of all, about the fact that he is going to have a son. And if you remember in that story, how does his wife respond? Blah, <laughs> Right? And then when she's confronted, like, well, I really didn't, you know, I, I, okay. She denied it, in other words. So that's the first thing. But then the Lord turns to Sodom. And Abraham listens to what the Lord has said about his son, but he's also listening to what the Lord says about Sodom. And he listens and he pleads and he receives what God says, he's open, he's honest, he's, he's willing to do what is necessary, and ultimately God lays out a plan for him. Now the point here is this. Abraham listened to the Lord and believed doing what God commanded him to do. The Jews who claim Abraham as their father will not listen to Jesus and don't believe, therefore they are not doing what God is commanding them to do. They're not acting and behaving in the same way as Abraham. That's his point. You say you have Abraham as your father, but guess what? You, by your behavior, by your attitude, clearly are not doing the works your father did. That's the idea. So, we understand what Jesus is getting at here. Maybe your grandfather was a pastor. Maybe you did go to XYZ Church. Maybe you are a graduate of XYZ Seminary and so on. But your lineage, although impressive, is not the issue. Your behavior, your attitude that reflects your belief is. Now, we're going to talk a little bit more about this as we move on. But today, many people falsely measure their credentials, in particular the credentials of their faith, on some past experience rather than on present reality. And friends, this is something that we have to make sure that we are, we are asking ourselves 
For example, in high school, you might say, well, you know, I, I walked an aisle. I prayed a prayer. I went to camp and I threw a stick in the fire. Um, I went on a mission trip. I was baptized. Uh, you know, and you can go down the list. All those things have their place. And we can look back and we can say, you know, God used this event to lead me here or to open my eyes here. But the best evaluation tool that we have is not what took place in the past, but what is taking place now. Because a lot of people can open the fly of their Bible that they were given at camp and it writes down, you know, you were, you know I, I asked Jesus to be my Lord and Savior on whatever date that is. You know, and they look at that. And that can be helpful. It can also be destructive. Because now you're measuring it based on an event as opposed to what is going on in your life right now. And the fruit that is taking place in your life right now may reveal that what is actually going on is unbelief. Now, friends, this is hard. And I'll tell you when this is really, really hard for me as a pastor. It's when I have to do a funeral for someone who's maybe in their 30s who maybe as they were growing up in a Christian home made a profession of faith, but from high school, in high school, and on out into you know, the, the mid-30s, they've been living a life, really not caring about the things of God, pursuing their own endeavors, you know, kind of wild, doing their own thing, living in the world, and this person passes away, however it might happen, and the parents are doing what? They're reaching back to anything they can find because they want some certainty that their child is in heaven. And they're looking back for little things and statements. Well, I know that when so-and-so was such-and-such, they, they confessed Jesus Christ. But as you go through the Gospels, friends, what you find is the hard message that you measure your spirituality based on the fruit that you're experiencing right now. And the hard thing for me as a pastor at that point in time is to think through how am I going to nurture this parent who is gonna be shattered if I say, well, you know, you know you're, you know, that your child's not a believer. I would say that at that point in time, but you just don't emphasize that. But you see how people kind of struggle with this? They, they, they want to go back and find that one thing. Rather than evaluate life and where that child is now. And friend, this, this may be hard for you because you have loved ones who at one point in time have, have made a profession of faith. They've done something. Maybe as they were a child and you were excited about that, but you look at their life now and you're like, there's nothing there. And I'm not saying that someone loses their salvation, but I am saying this, that the instruction of Scripture is that you will know them by their fruit. There will be fruit of repentance. There will be fruit that is demonstrated uh, as a result of initial faith. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and following says, add to your faith, and it goes down this list. It is fruit that is Holy Spirit driven. The fruit of the Spirit is. It's there. And this is all the result of God at work in the life of a believer. Now, it's not my place to judge. Someone is, someone isn't. That's God's place to judge. But it is my responsibility as a loving shepherd to say, let me warn you, let me present the truth so that you can consider whether or not you are in the faith. And friends, if I don't do that, if I just don't go there because I, I, I want to you know, worry about offending people, then I'm not being faithful to God's word. I'm not being faithful as a shepherd. So here we have this question, is Abraham your father? Is this lineage the most important thing? And what's interesting as we go along in this, this interaction here is that the Jews actually respond in such a way they're thinking, you know what, all right, let's move on to the next because we, we realize that Abraham isn't, isn't probably the best answer here. And the next question is, is God your father? And notice the, the dialogue as it continues here. They said to him, we are not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. So they're saying, yeah, okay, God is our father. You know, Abraham didn't work, so we'll, we'll focus on God. But, but notice what happens here first. There is a snide remark. I don't know if you caught this. It kind of, it's kind of weird as you're reading through it. You know, where in the world does this come from? They said, and we are not born of sexual immorality. It's like, what? What's going on here? What was one of the accusations they brought against Jesus? Well, who's your father? Hey, we at least are pure in our heritage. We were not born of sexual immorality. Hmm. 
So there was a certain stigma, there was a certain argument that was used against Jesus. Apparently here, that's what's coming out. And what's interesting here, friends, is, is that when people are pushed back into a corner with truth, often what they will do is shift focus and attack. Well, you this, and you this, and hey, listen, I, I'm a sinner. I struggle just like anyone else, right? That's, I mean, we have to have a humility to recognize, listen, the only thing that's different about me and you, if you're an unbeliever and I'm a believer, is that I've been the recipient of grace, and you haven't. The, 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 the way we get to that place is through being ungodly, enemies, alienated. And we all fit into that category, or we did fit into that category, right? It's not because of anything we have done, except that we have responded to the gospel that God has graciously extended toward us. So Jesus, in responding to his critics here, gives him or gives his credentials. I want you to see it as we go through this text. Just highlight it. Uh, in verse 38, he says, what I have, I'm speaking to you about what I've seen. He goes back again and reminds them about the fact, hey, listen, I, I was there with the Father. I saw him say this. I've seen him. Verse 40, I'm, I'm speaking about what I've heard. Not only did I see the Father, but I've also heard what the Father has to say. Verse 42 tells us that not only has he seen and heard, but he has been sent to say these things by the Father. So it's not just that he happened to be around heaven and he saw the Father. It's not just that he sat around and he heard the Father speak, but the Father spoke to him directly, giving him instructions, saying, this is what you are to do. So he's just giving credential after credential to say, listen, you've got it all wrong. We were not born of sexual immorality. Hey, listen, don't even go there because I have seen him, I've heard him, and I've been sent uh, to speak to you by him. And so then there's also a spiritual response, which would be, okay, God is our father. We have one father, even God. So we have Abraham as father, ethnic or religious uh, response here. God is our father, which now is really kind of a spiritual response, right? It's not an ethnically oriented response. It's a spiritual response. One is going back to their heritage, their, their lineage. Another one is saying, okay, in the broader sense, God is our father. Yahweh is our father. He's always been our father from the beginning. That's the, the intent and the idea. But notice how Jesus responds. Um, Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? You've know, you got to take that statement, why do you not understand what I say, in the context of everything else that he's saying, right? He said it over and over and over and over again. You know, I've beaten this into you, but you still don't understand. It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. So if God were your father, two things would be true. Number one, you would love me, and you would listen to me. So is God your father? Is Abraham your father? And Jesus is driving at something, and he, he kind of hinted at it earlier on. I think it was in chapter, uh, in, in verse 37. Um, let me go back there just a minute, see if I can catch it so you can, you can see it. Um, he says in verse, uh, verse 37, I know that you are the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word uh, finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. He's not talking about Abraham there. He's talking about a different father, okay? And it's the father we're gonna pick up right now and look at. Now the question is, is the devil your father? Before we get there, though, I forgot about this. With, with this issue of God being our Father and them not listening or, or loving, we, we must ask the question, um, why is it that those who are religious, in their thinking, love the Father and listen to the Father? Is that true? Well, take, take a Mormon, for example. If you asked a Mormon, do you love God, what would they say? Absolutely, okay? But their religion and its teaching clearly reject the teaching God has revealed in his word about himself 
and what he calls his disciples to be doing. So they're very much like what the Jews are experiencing here, just in a different way. We love God, but what we're doing is completely contrary to what Scripture says. What about a Jehovah's Witness? Would they say they love God? They have to qualify and say, well, I, we love Jehovah, right? And they, they would say the same thing, but if you look at their doctrine, they're teaching, they deny Jesus Christ as being God, they deny the, the Holy Spirit as being part of the Trinity, and their approach to, to life with God and to, you know, to salvation, it's a word that is very, very nebulous to them, um, is through works. So, so they claim a heritage, they claim a connection, but clearly do not have the same kind of works in other words, reflection. They don't do the things that their, their father, God, desires for them to do. And that was the same thing with the Jews. They didn't do what Abraham desired them to do. They didn't do what God the Father desired them to do. So what, what Jesus now says is really, really a true picture, even about those particular religions. Is the devil your father? And notice it says here in verse 44, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Now, I'm sure that just created a real joy in everyone that was listening to him, all right? Um, and obviously, that is the epitome of hyperbole, but um, just a reminder again, Abraham, this is, they claim, Abraham is their father, but you don't do his works. They claim God is his father, as their father, but they don't do his works. And the reality is, you have the devil as your father. Why? Because you desire to do his will, his works. Not Abraham's, not Yahweh's, but his. Now, it's worth noting here that many want to deny the existence of the devil. But clearly, as this passage reads and reveals, Jesus clearly believes he exists, right? So if you're going to believe the word of God to be true, and you believe that what Jesus says is valuable, you have to take what Jesus says at face value. He's identifying and talking about the devil as being a real, existing, created being. His existence and activity is taught in other passages of Scripture where he is presented as a real being who is consistently attempting to thwart God's purposes. And here, however, we have him from the lips of Jesus described for us in two behaviors. The first one is this. He was a murderer from the beginning. He was a murderer from the beginning. The question is, what is that referring to? Well, probably refers back to um, the encounter, the interaction with um, Satan in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve because their choice to eat the fruit was a choice that resulted in what? Death. His counsel, his advice, his deception caused that death to happen. Romans 5, 15 says this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. So he is a murderer, and it's his character right from the beginning. Secondly, he is a liar, and he doesn't stand in the truth. It says, and does not stand in the truth. That's the idea. He's a liar because there is no truth in him what when he lies, he speaks out of his own character. I mean, this is, this is who he is. Jesus says this is, this is what marks his nature. For he is a liar and the father of lies. So again, in the Garden of Eden, God says, eat of the fruit and you will surely what? Die. Satan comes along and says, eat of the fruit and you will surely what? Live. So here are these two responses. He's a murderer. He is a liar. And friends, the devil is real and he is active in the world today. He is described as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So there is a sense that he is, he is, he is mobilizing to find the weak ones and to sick his teeth into those weak ones. That's 1 Peter 5.8. He's described as an angel of light. And what's interesting is so is Jesus. Okay? Scary. In other words, he comes representing something that would be godlike. But he is not. He's a deceiver. All right? 
He is a deceiver, and, and he's also the father of life. So be careful that you listen to what God is saying in his word and with the Holy Spirit's help. Put on the whole armor of God, Scripture says, Ephesians 6, so that you will be able to stand against the schemes. I like the King James Version. What does it say? The wiles of the devil. There's no other kind of wile out there. That's why it's good. All right? His schemes, the way he is working. And, and all, you know, in a nutshell, what it's saying is God has given you all these tools, all these resources so that you can, you can recognize where he is at work, where, where Satan's at work, and, and the ways he wants to come in. But you apply these, these armor pieces to thwart him and to, to stop his activity in your life. Now, can I just say this? We need to have a healthy understanding of who Satan is, but we need to be careful that we're not fixated with him. Okay? We want to be honoring and praising the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to be pursuing, understanding his attributes and the way he is, but it's healthy for us to have a good understanding of who Satan is and what he is like and what he does and how he tries to get into our lives. But the power is not in us necessarily, you know, I finished today, I beat off Satan. Woo-hoo, look at me. You know what? You don't deserve any credit except that you did what God had already told you to do. It's his power, it's his work that accomplishes the, the defending of, of his children from the influence and the impact of Satan on their lives. So we need a healthy perspective, but we, we want to make sure that we're giving praise and honor and glory to him. So Jesus now makes his point. Verse 40, 45, because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Now this is a summary of this section of scripture in miniature. Because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Because I'm revealing to you who I am, you won't believe me. You will not receive it. I tell you the truth over and over and over again. You don't believe me, but are wanting to kill me. Verse 40, you're denying the truth. Verse 45, and you are just like the devil. So he's saying this. You claim to be Abraham's children, but you want to kill me. You must be the devil's children because that's exactly what he wants to do with me too. You think you're Abraham's children, but your attitude and your behavior reveals that your father is really the devil. That's where he's driving at this whole time, to let them understand, to let them see the real source of of um, counsel and direction and attitude is not in God, it's not in Abraham, it is truly rooted in this one that is called the devil. Now, as we continue on, we see what I'm gonna be calling the unfolding playground antics of the Jews. Notice what it says here in verse 46. Which one of you convicts me of sin? I tell you the truth. Why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. And he says, it's because you are, your father is the devil. Then the playground antics come into play. If you have your Bibles, notice, uh, look at verse 48. Jesus says, you are your father the devil. And how the Jews respond? Oh yeah, well, you're a Samaritan and you have a demon. I mean, you know, we're, we, we chop things up in paragraphs, but this is all part of the same flow of conversation. And every time Jesus is challenging, they come back with, with some question or some response, and it's like, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, we're going to call you, yeah, you're a Samaritan because of who you are, and you're, you have a demon. And they've said that before. They just, they do not want to listen to what he's saying. They do not want to accept the reality that their father is the devil. Well, who does? Walk down the street. Hey, how you doing? Do you know God? No, well, your father's the devil. <laughs> it's not the kind of thing that we're used to. It's not the kind of thing that culture truly accepts. There are some people who say, yeah, that's right. That's why I wear black. You know? Right? I mean, they, they love that, right? But that's not usually how people function. But, you know, my response to their response is, ugh, oh, brother. Because here they are, they're not even listening to what Jesus has to say. Evidence is presented, there's a childlike response. Now Jesus clears things up. 
in those last couple of verses. He says, you can know that I am telling the truth because you cannot convict me of sin. Has anyone ever been able to say that? It's kind of like saying, okay, give me a 360 check. Look, look everywhere. Look all around. Find out if there's anything. Can you see anything that you can actually point at and say that I've committed sin? Go ahead. Go ahead. Do it. Well, yeah, yeah, you're a Samaritan and you're, you have a demon. Can you get a little bit more specific than that? See, it's just, it's all this, this, this rhetoric just to push him away and what he's saying away. And so he, he gives his credentials. I don't sin, and this is what's come through this passage. I, I, I've seen the Father, I've heard him, I've been sent from the Father, I speak for the Father, and that's just in this paragraph alone. So, who is your father is the first question. Now we want to shift gears and kind of look at this from our perspective and ask the question, how can I know that God is my father? All right, three diagnostic questions that are going to help us answer that that are very, very obvious from the text but are worth looking at and seriously considering. First of all, it's this one. Do I listen to him? I mean, isn't that what Jesus is saying? You, you know, I speak, but you don't listen. I speak, you don't listen. I've said all these things, but you just, you just won't receive it. Why won't you listen? Why won't you receive? It's just like screaming at us. God has created us with the unique capacity to be revelation receivers. We've talked about this before. We're not going to leave today and go down to the dog park, and they're having a Bible study down there, at least the dogs. God has not created dogs with the capacity to receive revelation from God. We have been created with that capacity. The capacity to teach us about himself, to guide us to him, to keep us in him, to comfort us with him. It's all part of what the revelation of God's word is doing for us. And we've already seen that a true disciple needs to abide in the word and then ultimately will grow in the knowledge of the truth and then is established and understands freedom that is all rooted in that. So the word of God and what God has revealed to us has been given to us as a blessing from God so that we will actually receive it and benefit from it. But what happens to those who won't listen? Well, we find out in this text. And so there's some statements in this text that are put in the negative that I think it's appropriate to say, okay, let's turn those around and put them in the positive so we can identify what does a true child of God look like or how do you know that God is your father? This whole idea of listening. The first one is found in verse 37. His word finds place in me. Notice what it says in the text. You seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. So the opposite would, that would be, you know, the kind of person that has God as their father is the kind of person where the word finds a place in them. It's the word karos, the idea there is to have room for, to advance in. So does the word that God is revealing have room in you? Is there room for it? Is there a place for his word in your being? Now just think about that question. When you get up in the day, you know, the day and you're saying to yourself, I want to I live my day today, are you living with the idea that you have a place for God's word in your being, in your soul, in your thinking, you say, in your heart. Secondly, look at verse 43. He says, you understand what I say. No, that's not what he says. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot he uh, bear to hear my word. So the opposite of that would be, you understand what I say. Someone who has God as their father is the kind of person that actually not only listens properly, finds a place in their heart, but also understands what he says. Now, I want to pause here. Do we understand everything we read in the Bible? Absolutely not. But I want you to notice what we find as we go through here. This word understand comes from the word gnosko, which has the idea of coming to understand as a result of your ability to experience and learn. Remember last week we talked about gnosko being one of those words that identified the fact that our knowledge is not just from reading words on a page. Our knowledge comes from the experience of having the Holy Spirit guide us and teach us and show us. It is the experience that we have of learning that then produces in us the ability to know truth. Okay, So this, this is knowledge by means of experience, not 
that experience is the best teacher, but an experienced teacher can teach others what truth is. All right? Now, second to that is this word, um, cannot bear. It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. And the idea there is the ability to do something, this word cannot bear, comes from this word dunaste, which means an ability to do something with a negative. So it says cannot bear as opposed to you can bear it. So the idea here then is this. You do have the ability to bear my word, and as a result, you do understand. So God who is our Father, has given his children the ability to receive the Word. He's given us the tools by means of the Holy Spirit to receive the Word and then by virtue of that Holy Spirit to understand. Right? A person who doesn't have God as their Father does not have that capacity, does not have that ability, cannot say those things. Next, look at verse 47. It says that whoever is of God hears the words of God. So there's no negative here. It just states it. You hear what I say. There are other passages, though, you cannot hear. This is the Greek word, akuo. The idea here is to believe something and to respond to it on the basis of having believed it or having heard it. To believe something and to respond to it on the basis of having heard it. So you hear it and you do something based on what you have heard, okay? So it's not just, I heard it and it went in. It is actually doing something with it. It may be, put it this way, it means to believe what Jesus is saying and to respond to it favorably according to the Father's will. Maybe a better way to, to kind of paint the picture here is this. When a parent says to a child, you need to listen to me, they're not saying, I just want to give you a little bit of information and hopefully you can hear the words they're saying, I want you to hear what I'm saying, and really behind that is, I want you to do what I am saying after you hear it, right? Same idea. If God is our Father, that is how we hear Him, all right? So the first thing then is, the first question, diagnostic question to ask, how can I know that God is my Father is, do I listen to Him? It's a very important question. The second one is this, do I love him? Do I love him? From verse 42, Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. It's right there, it's very clear. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own account, but he sent me. So now when you're talking about having a personal relationship with God or a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, um, are you talking about what the Puritans would call as having affections. Affections are emotional um, responses, emotional attitudes, so that when we think about God, it's not just a head knowledge, it is a whole being knowledge. Now understand that if, if, our, if our emotions rule us, then it doesn't matter what we think, right? But what the Puritans understood is that when I understand who God is, as he is revealed, that is going to affect my heart. It is going to affect my emotions. Jonathan Edwards has written much about this. More contemporarily, John Piper has written much about this. Based on what he has learned and gleaned from, from Edwards and others. But the idea here is that, that God has not only created us with the capacity to receive his truth, but he's also created us with the capacity to respond to that truth with affections to God. So let me paint a few pictures here. When you read his word, are you reading it as if God was speaking his word to your soul? In other words, it's not just, here, here's, here's some idea, but there's this, uh, there's this idea revealed in God's word that he is speaking to you so that it will get into your heart and get into your very being and will affect you in your emotions. And I don't mean to be all emotional, but we respond and we listen and we sing. We sing some songs today, and one of the songs that I always struggle actually singing through is Before the Throne of God Above, just because of some of the things that are stated in there. And I find myself not being able to finish a stanza because I'm contemplating what I've just sung. That's a, a reflection of truth that is affecting my heart. 
and it is affecting my emotions and my affections towards him. When you pray, do you pray with full assurance that although God is holy because he has reconciled you to himself through his son, he delights to hear from you. Yes, he is holy, but you know what? If you are declared righteous, so are you. And he delights to hear from his children. Although they're still working out their salvation with fear and trembling, awaiting that day where their salvation is completed, 1 Peter 1, there is this wonderful confidence that we can have that our Heavenly Father delights when we come to him in prayer. When you sing, do you sing from the heart, a heart of praise and adoration because of what you know to be true about God in theory as well as in practice? See, much religion is theoretical. Um, It's a prescription of, of certain formulas that somehow make you feel better about how you are trying to get to know God. You know, I attended church today. I feel better now. I think I'm closer to God because I attended church. It's a good thing to attend church. But listen, God is not up there saying, woo one star for you. It's not how it works. But religion gives these all formulas to say, ah, I did X, Y, and Z. Now I feel better. Well, Christians look back to the cross and they say, there's a mess in my life, but my feelings are adjusted because I'm reminded that I am clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And even though I'm struggling with the sin, I can come freely to the throne of grace and I can pour all my sin through words of confession and I can adore God because he is always willing to forgive me. See, it's not just going through the routine of, of doing things and although those things are helpful. Obviously, you're here and I'm glad that you're here and I do think God is pleased that you are here. But it's not like you're getting all these brownie points up in heaven. It's part of the the mechanism of us growing in grace and being what he's called us to be. So, we ultimately recognize that we are not worthy. So a true disciple, a child of God, knows that he's unworthy and marvels in the fact that God sent his son to redeem those who would believe in him through the shedding of his blood on the cross. His joy, his peace, his confidence is rooted in the promises of God. This is true for all of us. So these affections are pouring out. We love him. We adore him. Our affections are there. That's one of the criteria here. One of the questions, do I love him? And it will be evident by affections. But there's another word that we need to look at here, and it's the word obedience. Turn to 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. I bring this up because scripture is just very, very plain about this. Now, 1 John is a very, very plain book. You know, you're either in or you're out. It's that kind of a book. And you can read it and really get shaken by it, and there's a need to actually work through some of the the Greek language and understand when he talks about if you sin, the love of the Father is not in you. You're like, well, I sinned. And the idea of that sin, it's in a certain tense, which means continuing, it's, it's part of your lifestyle and you're okay with that, then you have to ask yourself the question, is this really true, okay? Having said that, let's look at 1 John 5, 1 through 3. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, similar language, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him, so talking about loving one another. By this we know that we, that Uh, We love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Now, the the problem, I say problem, I use that in quotes. The problem with this passage is the word commandments. When we see commandments, what do we think of? Ugh, drudgery. We think of hardship. We think of things that are unnecessary. We're thinking of it in human terms. God's commandments are basically his instructions, his teaching, his guidelines, which are always for our what? Good, our benefit, our profit, our edification. When we see that, a person who loves God not only adores him with his affections, but also desires to be obedient to his commandments. It's not like, oh, I have to be obedient. It's a, I want this. Now, I understand that I want this, but I find it hard, right? But it's still, I want this. And I'm gonna fight all I can to be obedient to what he says. 
So do you listen to him? Do you love him? Finally, do you look like him? Notice the following verses from our passage. Verse 38, here we have a negative example. You do what you have heard from your father, and I put in parentheses there, the devil. All right, we interpreted that, we went back and understood that's what they're talking about. Verse 39 through 41. If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. You are doing, verse 41, you are doing the works your father did. So they look like their father, who's not been identified yet. Verse 44, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. So here we have instruction to them about who is their father and how do they know their father, and one of the criteria is what they do. What do they look like? Do they look like their father? And that's Jesus' argument. You might say Abraham's your father. You might say God is your father, but it sure looks like, based on your behavior and your attitudes and the things you do, that the devil is your father. Now, for us, we looked at and say, okay, let's learn the lesson. That means that in order to test whether or not we are God's children, the question is, do we look like our father? Okay? That's one of the questions we have to ask ourselves here. Um, am I doing the works of my father? Do I look like my father? Now, as I mentioned before, most people say, no, I, I don't think I look like the devil. I don't think that what I'm doing is actually devilish at all. Um, that's because they don't understand the, the very plain distinction that there is between following God and not following God and who really is behind ungodliness and continual sin. Now, this is not something that is that is new to us. This is not something that is just kind of sparsely in Scripture. It is throughout Scripture. We're going to highlight just a few things here because the reality is the language that Jesus gives and the language of the Bible is basically this. There are only two options. You're either of God or you're of the devil. All right? And this passage is what it says. You're either of God or you're of the devil. In other words, you're, you're either from God or you're from the devil. You're either from above or you're from below. You're either children of God or you're children of the devil. So this is true in the Gospels and it's true in the rest of the Bible. The terms might be different, but the idea is the same. Here's a few examples. Um, in the Psalms, you could just say even in Psalm 1, but you find this in the Psalms a lot. You have the ungodly and you have the godly. Pretty distinction, right? You don't have a third group. Ungodly, the godly. You have the wicked, you have the righteous. Then you have the ungodly described more specifically in Psalm 1, verse 1, sinners, scorners, scoffers. And then the blessed. But there are basically two groups, the ungodly and the godly, right? The wicked and the righteous. That's Psalms. Proverbs. You have the foolish and you have the what? Wise. Again, two distinctions. You fall into one camp or the other. Now, there may be even some more distinctions describing the foolish, but when it comes down to it, those are the two groups. When you come to the Gospels again, not only John, but other Gospels, you have the sheep and the goats, you have the wheat and the tares, and these are all just ways that Jesus is coming and he's speaking to those who are listening, saying, listen, there's only two groups here. You need to find out which one you're a part of, right? It's pretty, it's pretty plain. It's pretty open. It's pretty bold. Come to the book of Romans, chapter 8. Turn, if you would, please, there. Romans, chapter 8. We'll begin at verse 28. We know verse 28, but we need to see what's around verse 28, and in particular, how it relates to what we're saying here. Romans 8, 28 and following. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknow, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his, what? Son. We call that pursuing Christ-likeness. All right? But what's the point here? Are you like your father? So you say, I want to be like my father. Well, in order to be like our father, we have a goal to shoot for, and that is to be like Christ. 
And that's what Paul says here is what is being, what, you know, what is, what the goal is, what the endeavor is, and what the, the Godhead's purpose is in bringing men to himself, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Anyway, that's the Romans 8, 28 and following passage. The idea is conformity to Christ, being like Christ. Let me go to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Now, again, I realize that's a theological statement in Christ Jesus, but the in Christ Jesus also opens the way to be like Christ Jesus. We are clothed in his righteousness. We're, we're, in Christ Jesus here is talking also about all the things that took place on the cross, all the, the implications of the gospel. All those things are true. But one of those things that is true is that we begin this process then because we've been declared righteous, we have been justified. We, d- we begin this process at that moment of justification of pursuing who we already are but in this life. You are holy, now be holy. You are a child of God, now pursue being like a child of God because we are still struggling and tainted because we bring with us into our Christian life all of our sinful struggles and tendencies and thinkings and behaviors and we walk the other side of the cross and we're like, you know, how come our sin didn't just kind of disappear? It's all been paid for. But now we are to be slowly exercising ourselves toward godliness. Is that 1 Timothy 4, 7. Right? So these are all these pictures describing the same reality, moving that direction. I want to just kind of take us to one last one. That's Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Beginning at verse 22. Put off your old self. So this is all these things we've brought into our Christian walk. All these sinful ways of thinking, all these habits of the heart, all these things that you're just like, where did that come from? You guys ever had that experience? You know, you're, you're functioning, and all of a sudden, you know, maybe you had a problem with your, your language, or, or maybe you had a certain, you know, problems with thoughts, and it's like it's been a while, and in your Christian walk, something happens, and this thought comes to your mind, you're like, whoa, where did that come from? It's because it's all lingering effects of past life. It's old man stuff that is still there and needs to be put to death. It says, put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And you might want to jot down there Romans 12, 2, where it says, and be renewed, uh, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then verse 24 here, and put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. So here's our pursuit. We have things that we are putting off, and we are have things that we are putting on. And the reason we're putting these things on is because they are rooted in the effects of the gospel. They're actually part of the clothing that God has given us to be more like his son, Jesus Christ. Now, I want to caution us all here. And if I were in a counseling class, this is what I would say. A lot of times we look at this particular passage, you say, okay, there's the put off and there's the put on. And the expression put off is, is, is language talking about Clothing, dirty clothing. You know, when you, when you take a shower, you don't take off dirty clothes, get in the shower, and then put dirty clothes back on, right? You take off your dirty clothes and you put clean clothes on. But you do take a shower. And what's going on here is we need to re- remember verse 23. If, if we forget verse 23, if we, we forget this being renewed in the spirit of our mind, we've got to be careful here, we will produce Pharisees. And that means we're taking one old habit and we're putting on what we think is a new godly habit, but all it is is a, some kind of conformity habit as opposed to truly being renewed in the spirit of our mind. The Holy Spirit is teaching us, he's fashioning us, he's shaping us in our heart so that we desire and we long for, the, for these clothings that are holy and righteousness that are pushing us toward Christ-like. It's not just given the appearance of it. It truly is the resulting change that is necessary in the life of a believer. So the question is, am I listening to him? Do I love him? And finally here, do I look like him? And friends, that's a big challenge for us. And it is a way that we can truly assess 
whether or not God is our Father. Now, we're not talking about perfection. We are talking here about pursuit. But it may be the fact that you have never stepped through the wonderful grace of God from being an unbeliever to being a believer, from embracing all that the gospel has been accomplished on the cross that is, is benefited to you. You haven't been there. You know about it. You can talk about it. You seek to understand it. But you've never said, God, I am giving up everything I have. I'm letting go of anything I'm trying to impress you with. I recognize my sinfulness. I recognize you are sovereign. I recognize that, that you are ultimate and you are, you are high. You are lifted up. You are the Lord of the universe and I humble myself before you. I embrace the gospel and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and I ask you to forgive me of my sins and you step through and you enter into this new life with Christ. Now, it's not gonna be tiptoeing through the tulips but it is going to be guided by the Holy Spirit, fed by the word of God, and you're gonna grow and you're gonna see things change and develop and you are gonna be in this pursuit toward being like Christ. Are you listening to him? Do you love him? And do you look like him? Lord, help us today to consider these realities. It is so easy for us, like the Jews, to come up with claims that we think are are reasonable answers to our spiritual position and condition. But Lord, you give us a litmus test specifically from your lips. In the, in the context, Lord, of, of your challenging these Jews, Lord, you have revealed for us things that we need to look at. Lord, I ask that we would be people that listen to you and want to listen to you and do so in such a way that we are affected in our inner man so that we love you, so that we are showing our affections by that love toward you and praising you. And Lord, that, that our, our choices would be in conformity to your will, that we would be people who love your word, love your commandments, love your truth, and desire, Lord, to do that. And then, Lord, that we would not only listen and love, but Lord, our lives would be a reflection of you that we would be your children. We would be the son of God, little s, but reflections of you. Help us, Lord, to evaluate our heart, to allow your Holy Spirit to have freedom to fashion and shape us based on your truth today. And Lord, that we would be glorifying you with our responses, we ask in your precious holy name, amen.